Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The financial advice we'd love to give to characters on The Archers. We head to Ambridge to speak to Hugh Kenner-Jones, the editor of the long-running radio drama. Help, he's lost his drone. Rich People's Problems columnist James Max drops by to tell us what happened when his new gadget ended up in the drink. And which small cap share is the hero of your portfolio? We meet the stock picker David Streder, who's been queuing up to tell us about his story. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. Firstly, I have a confession to make. I may be a city girl, but I am a huge fan of The Archers, Radio 4's long-running agricultural drama series. And I happen to know that many FT money readers are also Ambridge addicts. It's not just about the farming, it's the big financial storylines that have got us hooked. Recently we've had property trusts, wills, inheritance, the lack of affordable housing in the village, and now money lending. The Archers truly has it all. So perhaps it's time, I thought, to introduce a new character in the form of a financial advisor who could help the various villagers manage their money. This week I've been speaking to real-life financial advisors asking what they would do if the fictional characters on the show were really their clients. Joining me on the line now is Hugh Kenner-Jones, editor of The Archers. Welcome, Hugh. Hello. So am I imagining it, or are there really more financial storylines in The Archers these days? Well, we don't set out to, uh, I mean, we didn't with the storylines that are running. I mean, they did mostly come from relationships, really, because that's, mm. that's where they all live, the characters. And so the characters will sort of take us in those directions. But I think it's either Mark Twain or George Bernard Shaw who said that lack of money is the root of all evil. Can't quite work out which one it was, uh, as in they both apparently said it. And so it does suggest a rich vein when it comes down to it but it's certainly not something we're conscious of doing in a you know as we sit down and talk the stories through you know for instance Justin and Lillian it was about those two characters getting together and what did that mean and the implications of that and of course they both come with certain kind of you know baggage and and some of that is financial both good and bad for them so that was always going to be an element of of sort of that story if that makes sense. And I think that it was Mark Twain who famously said, buy land, they don't make it anymore. Because, of course, <laughs> farmers are typically asset-rich. They've got the land yeah. and the farmhouse, but cash-poor because their income fluctuates, which, yeah. as the editor, gives you great dramatic potential. I mean, financial advisors that I've spoken to for the article tell me that 
farmers are generally terrible at making long-term financial plans and even more hate paying for advice. So, I mean, with Brexit looming, is your sense that the farming finances of Ambridge are about to get worse? Do you know what? I don't know. I mean, that's the, and I, and I say that, that sounds like a, a, a kind of a swerve, but in a way it is, I think with the situation that we're in at the moment in the whole country, I don't think anybody really knows because it's, un, it's an unfolding situation. So it's kind of happening as it happens. So we're just sort of watching, uh, you know, the, the community, farming community, both here and in Europe and thinking, well, what is going to happen? We have obviously a, a brilliant agricultural advisor, Graham Harvey. He's talking to everybody all the time. So we're, we're constantly reevaluating that situation. One of the things that people have said to me is that, you know, the, the last thing that a farmer will, which probably goes back to your, your quote about from Mark Twain, is the last thing they want to do is sell any land. Mm. It's the most important thing. It's their legacy. It's everything to them, which always puts us in a quite an, an interesting position because you know some of the some of our farmers are hundreds of acres and you think well sell some or you know um which is you know the story we we've been recently running about bridge farms selling some land for a housing development that was a huge deal for them because that's it's it feels like quite a small amount of acreage but actually every single i think tuft of grass is important if you're a farmer because that is what you've spent your life building so it's it's interesting looking at it from that kind of perspective i think yeah certainly generations of um, the same family owning owning that land and the, the emotion yeah. is um is conveyed wonderfully by the actor who plays tony the archers performs an yeah. important public service though as well as the financial problems affecting people in ambridge are listened to and experienced by millions of people all over the uk and beyond so raising awareness of some of the really big topics that you've tackled like rural poverty gambling addiction and more recently coercive control the robin helen storyline that really broke over into the mainstream media mm. what impact do you think tackling stories like this has in real life Again, it's important, I think, that, you know, if you, if you look at the Robin Helen story particularly, the, the instances of, of phone calls to helplines rose whilst that story was on. And I think that's brilliant and kind of has it should be. It's not where we start the stories from, because I think, and, and, and I know, you know, my predecessors as well, if you, if you go out to tell a story about an issue in whatever form that is, it inevitably becomes issue-led and not actually the story. And the story, we know the Robin Helen, the gambling addiction, and, and all the stories that we've told that have kind of touched the nation's consciousness have always been about putting characters into that situation and seeing how they react to it. When it does break through, that's a benefit. I think it's a it's a byproduct, but it's a it's a it's a healthy one. And, and it, it you know we're we're very aware of the responsibility we have when we tell stories like that because we have to get them right. That's the the most important thing is that you you want to if you're going to go down that route, you've got to make sure that it's it's kind of watertight as far as the reality of it. Well, that brings up a really interesting question: how do you research these financial storylines? I mean, certainly people have been debating Lillian's property trust furiously on, on Twitter. I mean, do you have any special advisors on agri-finance or personal oh, finance that you turn yeah. to? 
Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, yeah, we wouldn't... I mean, I would be the last person you would want to ask for advice about anything financial. I can tell you that for nothing. But so, yes, we, we make sure we go and talk to... when We have a kind of a, a network of researchers right across the board. And, of course, Graham Harvey, who, as I mentioned before, our, our agricultural advisor, he's, he's very involved in that as well. So we, we find people who will talk to us and usually give them the scenario and say this is the not the whole story but you know we we want to take it into that direction what do you think and what's brilliant about them is that they usually will say well you might not it might not work if you do that however if you do this and and send us in a different direction which inevitably it makes for a better story because we we won't have thought of certainly with things financial we are kind of reliant on the people we talk to and they're brilliant and we're very very lucky that they're happy to talk to us and tell us which way to move it it's kind of like a choose a choose your own adventure story um they come up with scenarios so in this article i've imagined that this um, character a new character is introduced to ambrose of a financial advisor um to get the (laughs) the the finances of the villagers in shape i mean come on hugh you're the editor could this ever happen (laughs) Anything is possible and everything is possible. That's what's brilliant about working on a, a show like this is that you can you can generally do anything and that's what's great. As I say, it has to be based in reality and it has to come from the character. That's the most important thing. You need to know that there are these people on Twitter called Felpersham Accountants. And oh, they, right. And they actually tweet out real letters. <laughs> Oh my God. There, there, there are four accountants doing it and they write letters to people like Emma. Oh, do they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to check them out, definitely. I've mentioned them um, in the piece, so they'll probably great. Oh, no, I, get some I will followers. Go and have a look at those. What we're so lucky about with our fans is that they, they're they so engaged. We know whether they like something or whether they don't, so that keeps us very honest. But but it's always usually done with an incredible wit and it, it is a joy when you know you, you have people who take it seriously enough that they're making proper points. So we're very lucky. Well, thanks ever so much there to Hugh Kenner-Jones, the editor of The Archers. You can tune in to the daily goings-on in Ambridge on BBC Radio 4 just after 7pm most days or catch up on the iPlayer. And do look out for FT Money's cover feature this weekend, The Archers, solving the financial problems of a fictional English village, which is available online from Friday on ft.com slash money. Our new columnist, James Max, has made a splash with the latest instalment of his column, Rich People's Problems. Eager to get his hands on the latest must-have gadget, he was lucky enough to receive a drone costing £600 for his birthday. But sadly, it ended up in the North Sea. James is here now to discuss his latest escapade with me in the FT studio. Welcome, James. Thank you. So, tell us, what were the circumstances that led up to you losing said drone. So it had gone up and it was flying and it was doing its thing and connecting to the satellites and la 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 and beep 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 and all these things and flying around and I'd learnt how to fly it and and it was brilliant. And it was taking pictures and all that stuff and I'd taken it on holiday and it had folded up and everything was amazing. But then one day I came back and I thought, right, now I'm going to learn how to do some more advanced stuff. And it just started to ignore me. Now, I don't know whether it was cross with me, whether it had a personality that had suddenly decided that I don't like this guy anymore. He's really annoying. He barks at me, whatever. I don't know. I don't like the dog, whatever. Anyway, so I pressed the thing to go down. It went up. Oh. I, went, I pressed the thing to go right. It went up further. And it just disappeared. And then suddenly... And it disappeared over the top of the house. And then I heard all this squawking of birds. And then silence. 
You know that eerie silence you get after something terrible has happened? Yeah. And then it just... I, it Gone. So you thought, hmm, have to get my money back. But there was a bit of an issue because it was a gift. Yeah, so this, I think, raises two things. First of all, the awkwardness of the conversation that you have to have with a person to say, look, I'm really sorry, but your gift has flown away. Because I tried to speak to Amazon myself and... They're just not interested if you haven't made the purchase. So you know how, say, for example, you go to a big department store with a gift receipt. Mm. Then immediately you're on the same terms as the person who bought it. There's no discussion. There's no anything else. And I know that I talk about marching in because I think if you're going to go and get customer service, you've got to be in a mindset. You've got to say, right, I know what I want to get and I'm not leaving till I get it. But you can't do that with an online retailer. So not only did I have the awkward conversation about okay, I've got to try and, you know, get them to deal with it. But then also you've got to deal with not an intransigent company, but a company that has rules and they're not going to do anything special or different for you. And least of all for you. Yes. <laughs> Which must have grated. So we should say that Amazon eventually did give you a full refund um, for the drone. Yes. Which you claimed was, was faulty. Obviously, it was quite hard to prove because you couldn't send it back. Well, they in... kept wanting to send the whole thing back. And I said, well, look, it's it's in the North Sea. I, I can't get it. I don't know where it is. But we did agree that if I sent all the other bits back, then obviously that renders it useless. So why would I possibly be lying if that's the case? But then after the refund had been given, they then took money out of you know the gift purchaser's account and said, you haven't sent your drone back, which we had. Well, I hope, you kept, I hope you kept the postage receipt. Well, I kept the receipt. And here's the thing, I think. If you ever send anything back via one of those, you know, I sent it via my local convenience store. So they give you a receipt that I'd sort of stacked in my wallet somewhere. Keep it. Keep it, keep it, keep it. Because that is your proof that you sent it. As soon as you've got that receipt, then the onus is on them, not you. So the moral of this story is that while customer service is possible to get online, even though you can't physically march in, Personal service is a much harder commodity to find. Yeah, I think there's two lessons, actually. There's, in addition to the customer service, think very carefully about who are you going to go back to if something goes wrong? And particularly if you're buying something technical or technological, can you or are you going to be able to get the service that you want? And the second thing is, and it was a pretty harsh lesson to learn, I think, is getting the right thing in the first place. It's not just about price. It's about doing your research and finding out which are the best manufacturers, particularly for new tech, where, of course, there are loads of people. There are loads of drones out there. There are lots of different people making all different kinds of lots products. Lots of different price points as well. And different price points as well. And, of course, we all want to spend as little money as possible and get the best thing. And the mantra that you get what you pay for isn't always right, but it is often right. Well, thanks very much there to James Max. You can read his column, Help, I've Lost My Drone, online now at ft.com slash money. And if you have a problem for James to look into, you can get in touch with him confidentially. His email address is richpeoplesproblems at ft.com. And it's still not too late to come and see him at the FT Weekend Festival this Saturday, 2nd of September, at Kenwood House in North London. For tickets and full details, visit ftweekendfestival.com. Who knows? He might even bring his drone. He might. Alternatively, he might bring his wit, spontaneity and personality. 
Finally, small is beautiful for many private investors who have a penchant for shares in small cap companies. In recognition of this fact, I've tasked the FT My Portfolio columnist, John Lee, to come up with a new feature in FT Money. So from time to time, he will interview fellow small cap enthusiasts about the most heroic share in their portfolio. This week, we're kicking things off with David Streder, the well-known small cap investor who joins me now on the line. Welcome, David. Very pleased to be here. Thank you, Claire. Well, without further ado, the most highly prized small cap share in your portfolio is... Da, da, da. Uh, well, it has to be a SESO technology, really. It's, it's a company that I've had many years, though. I've had, I think I've had the shares for about 16 years now. OK, that's a long time. Presumably they're listed on AIM, because most of the they companies are, on AIM. you Ticker like are. is the AXO, which is ACSO. And what do they do? Well, they started really very early on with uh, queuing technology and a very simple uh, technology initially where the founder had been to a theme park and decided that his day out with his grandchildren wasn't very good because he'd been in queues all day. Queuing up to get on a roller coaster. Exactly. And I think most of the time he felt that, uh, you know, a whole day in a park was spent really probably two thirds in a queue. So what so did he, he do? decided it do something about it and uh, he, he created initially some queue um, measurement equipment so that he could translate that into providing times that uh, people would be in a queue and then went to the theme parks to say would you like me to do something about your queuing and they created a, a sort of a premium gadget that you would rent for the day that allowed you to key in the ride you wanted to go on and allowed you to virtually queue instead of physically being in a queue. And presumably that's fantastic for the theme park operators because if you're it's not standing in a queue, you can spend loads of money. <laughs> yes. I think the biggest problem for most theme parks where people are queuing is to actually service that queue because it's you know the revenues don't come while you're stood in a queue. They come while you're active and going around the park, buying things and playing things and doing things that are associated with spending money. So it's ideal to pull people away from the queue and get them to go in the restaurants and things. So, yeah, it's, it's something that's a win for the theme park, but also a, a win for those who want to spend a good day in the theme park and enjoy it and go again. So if you, if you feel that you've done more, you tend to want to go back. Well, people always ask successful investors where they get their ideas from. So tell me how you spotted this one 16 years ago. Well... Funnily enough, I, I'm not the typical person that doesn't enjoy a queue. I, I actually quite like chatting with people. I'm a northerner, so I love finding out what people stood next to me do and where they've come from. So they didn't worry me, but I, I must admit, I did. When I heard this, I didn't know. I did sort of um, understand the reasoning behind it because I know how much I've got a lot of children and I know how much they don't want to be in queues and they want to be doing things. So it did seem like a very good idea to me, and it, it was just a question of how they would be able to roll it out, um, because going from having nothing out there to having a system that went in so many theme parks around the world, it was a question of having good management that would be able to do this. So I went to meet the management and thought that they had a chance of you know, being well ahead of the game, and uh, and I put the initial investment in at a very low share price. It was, I think, only 7p at the time. And of course, nowadays, it's gone up to about, well, it nearly touched £20. So 
it's been a very good investment. But it was one of those where I got to meet the management very early and got a very good feel for what they were doing and, and appreciated the problem, as it were, that, that they were going to overcome. Now, the shares have obviously been on a roller coaster ride, mostly upwards. They've come off a little bit recently. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to sell down and take profits? Oh, I mean, I'll be honest here. I mean, I had at one point a very, very big holding in SESO as in percentage of the company even. So I, I, I never feel comfortable if I have too much of my portfolio in one company. I like to spread my portfolio across quite a number of companies. So it, it hit my 8% uh, level. I don't like more than 8% in any right. uh, any company to have 8% or more of my portfolio. So I've had to sell, I think, um, on at least sort of 25 occasions over the years. And, and the way I tend to look at it is, so long as I'm doing my research and spotting other companies that are hopefully going to equally grow, possibly some of them faster than SSO can actually grow now, because so SSO has become a much more mature company and actually has branched out into ticketing and all sorts of other things that the theme parks would need. So it's good to really spread your risk. And uh, uh, as far as looking at SSO right now, it's, it's, it's still a very, very good company and very well run good management but it's gone well past its early days and of course it's nice to keep meeting new management and finding out what's at the forefront in new industries well thanks very much there to david Streder. you can read john lee's interview with david in this week's edition of ft money or better still come to the ft weekend festival this saturday where you can meet and put questions to both john and david for tickets and full details see ftweekendfestival.com that's it from the FT Money Show. To get in touch with our team of financial experts, email money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money, or comment on articles online at ft.com slash money. The content in this podcast is for sophisticated investors only and does not constitute investment advice. We'll be back next week around the... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Usual time. Goodbye.